that's what I do. Okay, for those of you who weren't here this morning, but are listening online, today is the 25th of Cheshvan in 5777. Hanukkah is a month from today. 25th of Kislev, the fifth day of next week, is Rosh Kodesh. Fifth portion, Kaye Sarah. Yes, ma'am. Tuesday, Megan and Kira are coming. <laughs> That's exactly right. Megan and Kira McDonald will be here on Tuesday, but only after their father stops at one of our clients in Pennsylvania and replaces the firewall. <laughs> We're taking advantage of visits from the north. Uh, I think the only thing we wanted to mention was the move next Sunday at, I think, 10.30. So we'll be going to... Alexander Apartments. Sedgefield Apartments in uh, Sedgefield. Yeah. And then um, they're going to be uh, moving into a home about halfway down Carmel Road. Um, not but a block or two from where the Pittengers live, if you're familiar with that. Um, there's a school over there, so that's where they're going to be. I don't think there's anything else. Anything else? Israel in January. January, February. Anybody from March? Anybody March? 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 Wow. April? There's a sign-up sheet for the So we are looking for a Bella Torah apartment there. So if you find one that's just flawless, you know, we can. Great. Yeah, would not be something unbelievable. Yeah, well, this too shall come to pass at some point here. Joshua, I think you are up. Okay. And uh, if it gets too cold, close the door. It's already closed. Already closed? <laughs> yeah, it closed itself. All right, I think we're okay. I think we're okay. Elijah. It's Elijah, right. Can't even win. Yeah. We're, being, still, we're still waiting for the, uh, the rather... Humorous experience is going to be with someone opposite or Elijah is standing here. Mm-hmm. That's going to be quite a surprise. Um, so yeah, as we uh, we're starting to try a new tradition here, um, at least the current tradition of um, starting off with a little lesson aimed at a younger generation, uh, followed by some discussion of the portion as people had things they really wanted to hit on, and then we'll go ahead and talk about the haftar and the apostolic writings as well to give them their due since we don't normally take the time to do that. So we're going to try that this year, see how that goes. Um, yes, sir. And so, uh, to get things started, I'm going to ask Sophia, do you think that you were a, a fast person? Are you fast? Um, you're slow. You're slow? That's okay. <laughs> but do you do anything fast? Yes. What do you do fast? I play with my jeweler jo- 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 fast. 
Space Stroller very fast. There we go. Yes. Yes, it's good to do some things fast. Micah, what do you do this fast? Um, <laughs> Math. <laughs> you, you, you read very fast. Very well. Well, I can read, run. Everything. Yeah, Micah, you look like someone who does everything fast. I can see you being a very fast person. I could definitely see that. Ben, what do you do this fast? Um, watch movies. <laughs> you watch movies fast? How do you watch movies like, fast? Like, go on a marathon and get through it. Oh, so you got endurance. Endurance, yeah. Okay, got you, got you. Um, so the, if you if you read I through... Fast. Oh, yeah, dad, dad, <laughs> now, dad's like Micah. He does everything fast. He eats fast, he drives fast, he flies airplanes fast. I sleep fast. He kind of does, actually. Um, Shosha, what do you do this fast? Everything. Yes, you gotta do everything fast. I do everything slow. Juliana can attest to that. <laughs> she did the same. <laughs> she knows it's true. I like to do things slow. I like to take my time, make sure it's done right. Um, the first time. Uh, probably because if I do it fast, I usually have to do it a second time. So I've learned my lesson and I just do everything slow. Just do it twice. <laughs> so, um, but in this parsha, one of the, one of the, things you hear a lot is running. Everybody's running. The the servant runs to meet Rivka. Rivka runs to meet the uh, to water the camels. Laban runs to meet Rivka. And of course, this is important because um, when we want to, with the lesson we're learning here is that there are some things we should do fast. And the reason why this is significant is that Abraham is very famous for making sure that he ran to do good deeds. He ran to do the mitzvot. So um, when the when the angels show up at his tent. This is a couple of hours ago. Um, he runs to go meet them. He's so excited about having guests at his home. He ran, runs to meet them. When, they, when, they have their, um, when he goes to get them food, he runs to go get them food. And so the, the importance about this is that Rebecca, Rivka, is like Abraham. She runs to do something good. So when you're, uh, as we're, as we're, the, the lesson to learn from this is that we should be quick to do the right thing. That sometimes means doing it fast, sometimes means doing it first. One of the things that I have a lot of trouble with sometimes is getting started on a project. You're sitting there and you know there's something you need to do but you don't really want to do, so you're trying to, you kind of put it off. And once you get started, it's pretty easy, but getting started is sometimes the hardest part. And so it's important when it comes to something that's good to do it quickly. I remember Greg and I were talking one time and he had, he had heard somewhere that if you have a, something to do at work that's really no fun, you're not really looking forward to doing it, do it first. Start with that, because that kind of, it helps you get going once you, once you do the hard things first. So it's not surprising that in, when Judaism, one of the things that we always do first, or one of the first things we do, is pray. When you wake up in the morning, you're supposed to say a prayer, thanking God for waking you up. Um, one of the very first things you do before you do almost anything else besides get dressed is do the morning prayers. So you start by doing the right things. So the lesson that we learn from this is that we should be quick to run to do good, um, the contrast, of course, is Laban is also running, uh, but he only runs after he sees all the, the pretty jewels that Rebecca's wearing. He's all excited about, you know, this is a wealthy guy who's going to give my family some money. So he runs after him, and it reminds me of the prayer that we do every week for Zadi class. He says, some run, how does, how does it go? To the life of the world to come. And some run. To the pit of destruction. Because some people are running to, for things that make them, that made it fun, maybe, but not necessarily bad, but some people are running things that are bad. Some people run to do evil. Some people are so excited about doing something wrong, they can't wait to do it. And so that's the contrast. So you have some people that are running toward evil and some people that are running to do good. 
Um, but the idea is that running also, it's part about changing your attitude, because you're supposed to be happy about doing something good. It's not supposed to be a drag, like, okay, if I have to, but you want to be excited about it. And putting that energy into it, making it something you're doing quickly or intentionally or with a lot of endurance, as the case may be, um, then you end up doing it uh, with a better attitude because you, you act like you want to do it and it helps to make you want to do it. So that is the, uh, that's the lesson. So Sophia, when you, were, when you were cleaning up your toys and mommy asked you to clean your toys, can you do it quickly? Um, yes. Yes. Are you, you going to do that quickly next time? Yes. All right. Okay. I smile when I fly and we drive. <laughs> right, exactly. Um, I learned it from that. So, uh, so that's the sort of the one of the one of the points we learned from Rebecca here. Um, one of the other th- I mean, we were talking about uh, Sarah. Of course, one of the other things that's interesting is that they count her years very awkwardly, one hundred and twenty and seven. Um, she's one hundred twenty-seven, but they they break it up because they talk about this idea that she was consistent throughout her whole life. When she was 100 years old, she was like she was, she was 20, she liked when she was, she was 7. She was a person who was always a good person, and she ended her life as well as she started it. Which speaks volumes, because it's very difficult to do to maintain that kind of consistency throughout. And, um, and we're now into the stage where you can feel free to jump in with comments as we, as we continue to go. But, uh, of course, this whole story, talk about being running to things that are evil. We get that very strong contrast of someone who's willing to do anything, really, for what he believes is right, versus someone who is really willing to milk something for all it's worth between the contrast of Ephron and Abraham. So Abraham's wife dies, and he's offered an opportunity to have a burial place for free. But he absolutely refuses, because in his mind, you pay for that. And this harkens to the story of David. Um, David, uh, There's a plague afflicting Jerusalem. And David goes up to offer offerings on what is actually now the Temple Mount. And he gets up there, and one of the only other times in the Bible where, some, where a, a Hebrew person buys property in the land of Israel, he goes up to a Jebusite who happens to own this threshing floor um, uh, atop the Temple Mount. And he says, I need, the thre- I, need, I need this spot to offer an offering. And the guy's got oxen and other types of things. Like, and I need your, your oxen to offer as the offering and, and the, you know, the wood you've got here and whatever else. And, and the Jebusite, because he recognizes this is King David. King David's an impressive guy. He's like, you can have it for free. And David says, nope. I will not offer a sacrifice that costs me nothing. He knew that some things were so important to pay for, so important to, have giving, give, to give it himself, that he was unwilling to accept it for free. Abraham does the same thing. Abraham here, he realizes that this is his way of honoring Sarah. It's extremely important that he personally invest in this. And so he says, no, I won't take it for free. I will will buy it. And of course, Ephron, who owns the field, is like the opposite perspective. Ephron's milking this one. He's like, you can have it for free, but not really. He doesn't really want to give it to him free, but he's just saying that. And then, there, and, then, and then the next line, he kind of passive-aggressively says, oh, well, it's only 400 shekels. I mean, that, what is that? You know? Uh, just, you know, you and me, we're buddies, right? You know, so, of course, that's his way of saying, I expect this. But, but the tradition holds that he asks for an exorbitant price. This is extremely expensive, way more than the land was worth. But Abraham does it willingly because Abraham wants to do this the right way. And I think that's really impressive that to Abraham, it was almost like it didn't matter whether or not it was the right value, whatever else, because it was so important for him to honor Sarah and to honor her in a way um, that was only only meaningful to, I mean, not only be a good example to others, but it was meaningful to him. Like, it was really about him. He needed to own that. He needed to to do that and to in, invest in it himself. 
And I, I think I, I mean, I understand that. I mean, there are definitely times where, um, when as you men get older, get married, have your own families. Uh, every now and again, your I'm, I'm assuming your uh, you know, very well off father will probably offer to pay for things for you. Sometimes you should say absolutely yes because your father's doing it because he loves you very much. And it's very important to him. Every now and again, it helps to say I'm going to pay for it myself. There's a balance you have to learn. It's sometimes a bit tricky. I think we gotten there but um it's uh but it's important to do that um every now and again to pay for things yourself because it's about ownership it's about investment and especially when it has to do with the mitzvah one of the things that they teach about the lulav is you can borrow anybody's lulav to shake it but before you borrow it there you have to in tradition you have to actually exchange the property the guy says i he uses a special formula to essentially say i give you this lulav temporarily so that it's actually yours this says you should take a lulav and shake it. It actually has to be yours. You can't just borrow somebody else's to do it. It's supposed to be yours. So there's this little kind of like exchange of sorts that takes place. You take theirs. Now it's yours for five minutes. And then you give it back. But the idea is that ownership's important. It's important to own your good deeds, to invest in it yourself. Yes, sir? There's a <clears throat> another understanding with this transaction because... Um, the Hittites didn't really appreciate the real value of what they had. And whereas Abraham appreciated the spiritual value of what they had, and according to Jewish tradition, Abraham went into the cave and, and discovers that it's actually the place of Adam and Chava. Mm-hmm. And so this cave was special, and there's lots of kind of... <laughs> mystical, mystical reasons for that, right. ...mystical things about the cave. Um, and, and so Abraham immediately appreciated the value of what that cave and field represented, whereas the current owners did not appreciate what they had. Mm-hmm. Right? And even though... He asked this exorbitant price as kind of like a, you know, this kind of passive aggressive thing that you described. According to this perspective, Abraham was more than willing to pay for it because it was worth that and probably more because of the significance that the cave mm-hmm. had. And um, so. And it's, it's, and it's a good thing that he did, in fact, pay for it. And it's one of the few actual, you know, kind of legal transfers, legal transactions that's recorded in the scripture with respect to, you know, a, a Hebrew buying land. Because one of the most contested places on the planet... <laughs> Is this exact piece of three places that are most contested? The tomb of Joseph, yep, under Palestinian authority. Temple Mount, Mount, under Palestinian authority. Hebron, all three of which were not only bought by Jews, were not bought by Hebrews, which is important Israelis. They were actually bought. It's recorded, recorded, but they were bought from non-Jews, which is also significant because Jeremiah goes out and buys property. He redeems the property from his uncle or whatever else, and that's one of the only other property exchanges that takes place. But he's the implication is he's buying it from another Israeli who's taken the debt and whatever else. But this is significant because he's buying it from a non-Jew. In other words, the 
original owners of the property, so to speak, are actually selling the property to a Hebrew. Even though Abraham's been promised by God, all this land is going to be yours. He feels the need to actually buy it now. Um, it's interesting because if you read, the cool part about Machpelah is it's, it seems to draw like the really impressive dudes to Machpelah because in the tr- one of the stories that comes up with the traditions is Caleb, they go in to spy out the land, Caleb makes a beeline for Machpelah, like that's where he wants to go in his little uh, uh, survey of the land. And so when Caleb comes back, it says, oh, we got this, like we can take over the land. What's important is he goes to Machpelah well, Machpelah, the reason why they call it Kiryat Arba, one of the traditions as to why they call it Kiryat Arba, is because there were four giants that lived there. Like, these are huge, massive dudes that were there. So Caleb doesn't just go and find the place that he thinks is most holy. He also finds one of the ones that's most contested. He finds one of these areas that, like, the, the bad guys have come in and they've put roots down. But Caleb says, no, 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 it's okay. We got this. God's going to help us. He's, we're going to win. It doesn't matter. And so God makes a promise to Caleb that where his feet have gone... <laughs> That's going to be his. So it's like he has been rewarded, so to speak, with this territory that he's claimed. And it's interesting that you almost get an allusion to this in this passage because it talks about the fact he buys the cave and the field and the trees that are in it. Well, one of the things that, that Moses says when he sends out the spies is he asks them to ask if there's any trees there, which is kind of an odd reference. Um, and there's lots of different reasons as to why people say he asks that question. Um, but it almost kind of alludes to like the cave of Machpelah and the trees that were there and Caleb's, you know, mission to get there. Uh, one tradition holds that Caleb goes there to pray because he felt like he knew he would need the moral strength to, uh, to, to push for taking the land. So he makes a point of making sure he does that. Kind of reminds me of what we were talking about earlier, about running to do the right thing. He starts by going where he's going to become spiritually stronger. Yeah, that's his starting spot. So yeah, so, he's, so uh, Abraham buys Machpelah, buries them. It's kind of cool. This is a neat parasha. We don't get this very often, but um, in the very beginning of the parasha, Sarah dies. Abraham ba- buries her. And up until this point, you have to, I mean, we, we've, we've been following Abraham all over the place. And his story, which by far, at this stage of the game, is, is about half of the Torah up to this point. I mean, it's a huge chunk of the story has been about Abraham. Um, and Abraham and Sarah are really this this really beautiful, you know, uh, best friend love story. You know these these two have been together for a hundred years at this point. Um, they've uh, they've gone through the the, the difficulty of ha- not having kids together. They've had their we we see more conversations between them than just about any other married couple in all of the Bible. Like they're they're in fact Sarah in her relationship with Abraham is so iconic. Peter specifically calls her out as an example of what a good godly wife is supposed to look like. Because if you look in this in the in the portion. She's one of the only women you really get to inside look at, like her relationship with her husband. Um, so this is kind of like this tragedy at this point, the start of this parasha. You know, Sarah has died, and it's it's good that you know she's moved on to a better place. She's ended her life well, but it's sad, and it's interesting that at the end of this parasha you get the the the, the, the follow up. You know, Abraham dies, and they bury him in Machpelah with Sarah. So it's almost like there's this bookend to this parasha. At the beginning, Sarah dies and she's buried, and the end, Abraham dies and he's buried. Um, well, of course, we have the whole situation with Isaac and Rebecca. We don't need to go into all that um, necessarily. We read the story right this morning. But one of the things that stands out that's really cool is that uh, it, there's a verse in the prophets where God promises to answer people quickly. In fact, it's a 
verse that's so powerful, it's requoted in the in the prayers. And I think it's actually in the Yom Kippur prayers, if I recall correctly. And God tells people of Israel, before you call, I will answer. And his point is to be that, like, look, if you guys will just repent, if you will come back to me, our relationship will be so close, you won't even need to ask for stuff. Like, I'm going to be with you so intimately, I will know exactly what you want, and I will be interacting with you before you even finish asking. And, and I almost have to say, you know, we, we, we believe that the scriptures stack on top of each other, and there's not like, these new concepts. And so it's always kind of fun to find things in the Torah that show up in the prophets and this show up in the apostolic scriptures. So in the, here in this portion, Eliezer comes to God and he's asking, hey, look, I need, you know, let this woman be the right woman for, for Isaac. And since it specifically says before he's even done praying that Rebecca comes out. So God is already answering his prayer before he's even finished asking for it. We get the same kind of concept later in uh, Romans. Paul says, you know, look, you don't even know what to ask for, but the Holy Spirit knows you, knows the mind of God. You know, ultimately, he's praying on your behalf. God himself is actually putting in the request that you should be asking for. So we see that parallel throughout all, uh, through these three different sections of scripture, this idea that God knows us so well, he knows what we need even before we ask it. That reminds me of Moses and Aaron. Because mm-hmm. Moses was like, I don't speak well, I'm not ready. And God says, if you'll disagree, your brother's already coming. He's already coming. <laughs> <laughs> Had a feeling this might happen, I already told him to go. It's cool when God answers the prayers of our heart before we've been able to speak them. Yeah, absolutely. Daniel, yeah, there, there are numerous places that God hears those requests and knows our hearts before we're even able to put in words, which is also what the New Testament talks about, the Holy Spirit is understanding and picks our groans and interprets them in ways that we can't express, but that God knows and understands. Which is a very Jewish concept. They actually, one reason why they talk about um, why Nagum's songs are such a big deal is because it's this idea that um, in Hasidism that you don't, that there are some things you can't put into words. There are some desires and some prayers that are so um, mystical and complicated and spiritual, it's difficult to put them into human language. So we express it in other ways. And uh, what Paul is saying in Romans, and it seems to kind of be a pattern you see in Scripture, is that, of course, God, God having created us, he understands us well enough to know what it is that we are really asking for, even when we can't say it ourselves. So, like, for kids, if you're designed for kids, who's um, pointing out that uh, Eliezer didn't have a minion with him, if he was still able to pray to God without a minion, oh, yeah. but that he had a minion of camels. Oh, that's true. Yeah. <laughs> he had the meal, which I never know. <laughs> um, but then, but then, like, their bigger point was... It's just a good example of, like, we can pray to God at any time. Okay. Even though we have a store, but we can pray to him. Totally. Which I did think was more of, like, an apostolic scriptures concept, like the anytime praying. And so it is neat to see an example of it. Right, exactly. You, you get that parallel to scripture. Nice. And you do get that, and that, and Judaism makes a big deal about this. This idea of the the idea of praying God to God ad hoc, as it goes, in the moment. I thought was cool is in this one, um, I think it's this reference here, you get that idea almost that like God hears his thoughts. And I thought that was neat because I think sometimes you read the prayers and it feels almost like, you know, everything is spoken. Do I have to say everything out loud? You know, we have, because we got Hannah, Hannah's mumbling things out loud and uh, the priest Ellie is uh, kind of confused, thinks she's drunk because he's not sure why she's talking to herself. Um, I'd have really confused him, I do it all the time. But the, um, 
but then in um but this idea that God hears our thoughts, I think, is, is also important because there are times when it's just no time to pray. You know, I'm walking around in the hallways at work, and if I start talking to myself, I'll have the same problem that Hannah had. You know, mm-hmm. people thinking that something's wrong. Um, and so it's good to know that, like, God, God's aware of us at all times mm-hmm. and that he's available for us to um, not only to make requests of, but just to communicate with um, and, and to talk to even in our own heads. And they kind of get that idea here, this closeness of the relationship. Your grandfather's favorite, Psalms 139, it says, before you think your thoughts, he knows them. Right, yeah. Right, and that's kind of what we get here from Eliezer as well. You know, God's aware of what's going on well in advance. And I think it's encouraging because I think that sometimes, I don't know, when you want something really badly, sometimes you can almost feel like, well, did I pray for it hard enough? Did I do the right prayers? Did I say the right things? If I, um, Or did I, maybe I didn't say it the right way, you know, or something like that. And the reality is that God knows God knows all of our desires. It's not really up to us to convince him to do something for us. The only reason we're praying is not because we're trying to get him to change his mind. It's more about changing us and getting us to kind of see it from his perspective and, and also to, to, um, to express the sincerity of our desire by expressing it in some fourth fashion. Uh, it helps make us want it more and also helps us, as we are talking about earlier, make that investment in that. This is my investment is my words. My investment is my, my prayers. Um, so we talked earlier about running and running back and forth. Um, there's a weird little, uh, have you ever played the game, what's wrong with this picture? You know, look at this picture, look at that picture, why is he wearing a red hat, you know, whatever. Otherwise, pictures look the same. Um, there's this also like, uh, you know, almost kind of like a where's Waldo kind of thing, you know, where's the person who's not. Uh, this story seems to be where's Betuel? We're in the middle of the story, we're following along and there's Betuel and Laban and... And then all of a sudden, now we're just talking to the brother and the mom, and Bethel's gone. It's kind of weird. doesn't really make a whole lot of sense. Um, Jewish tradition holds that Bethel was so greedy about the whole thing. He was, yeah, that he actually, there's a, I think there's even a, 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 one tradition holds that he tries to, like, assassinate Eliezer to, like, keep him there, keep them there, Rebecca there or something. Anyway, so, um, like, an angel of, uh, from God comes and takes Bethel out of the picture. So he's gone. So that's why he just sort of disappears in the middle of the story, because he dies. <laughs> like, okay, okay. Um, but even still, I think what's cool is even if that's not true, there's a lot of parallels here, because you get Laban, just like a um, foreshadowing. Later on in the story, we have Jacob interfaces with Laban, and Jacob inter- interacts with Laban, and he tells him something very similar to what we read here. He says, I can't say anything to you, good or bad. God came to me in a dream and told me not to... Because this is when Jacob runs away from Laban with his family. Laban's upset, chases after him. Um, and so Laban gets met by God in a dream and says, don't you say anything to Jacob. <laughs> you saw what I did to Bethuel. You know, this is like almost this is a, kind of a <laughs> kind of a mafia-style threat that goes on here. And uh, so Laban's very careful when he meets with Jacob. And we kind of get that, that picture almost here. Uh, that Eliezer's prayed to God to ask for help, but actually that's very important. Because there's almost like a miracle happening here. And it, Laban seems to kind of need those. You know, like, he, he, uh, we can't say anything good or bad about what's happened. It's from God. So, you know, go ahead. You can take Rebecca. Yes, Micah. Actually, the angel thing is what I was going to say. Oh, the angel thing? Oh, sorry about that, Micah. <laughs> I asked a rhetorical question. I should have actually asked a question. So, anything else? Pulling out of the parasha. We can move on to the Haftar, but I want to hit things here. 
Um, so one thing that's interesting is uh, you, you see here the first time, this is coming a little bit farther ahead, so this is when Rivka and Eliezer are coming back, mm -hmm. and she sees you know Isaac in the field, and then Isaac takes her into, into Sarah's tent, and takes her as a wife, and it says Isaac loved Rivka. Right. And this is the first time, well actually it's the second time that we see that expression uh, where it uses the word love. So for example, we never read anywhere that Abraham loved Sarah. Right. It's kind of implied, right. but it's never explicitly stated. Right. Um, we saw in the last portion that Abraham loved Yitzhak. Take your only right. son whom you love. Right. That's the first time in Scripture where we actually see love expressed explicitly between two people. In that case, it was the love of Abraham for his only son. Right. Now in this portion, we see Isaac loves Rebecca. Same guy. The first one was Abraham and Isaac. Yep. The second one is Isaac and Rebecca. Same guy. Correct. So, um, and, you know, there's a, there's a, a parallel here. You know, Re Rebecca is this righteous, um, righteous woman. And it's interesting that when you, uh, when you read when they were still in, in Panorama before they left to go back, uh, when you read the blessing that they gave um, mm -hmm. Rivka and compare it to the blessing that Hashem gave to, um, mm -hmm. to Abraham two chapters earlier, you know, it says, And they blessed Rivka and they said to her, Our sister, may you become thousands of myriads and may your seed inherit the cities of its enemies. Mm -hmm. um, and, and that's almost verbatim the same blessing right. that Hashem gave to Abraham two chapters prior. Mm -hmm. um, and so so there's this and, and this is coming from her family. Right. Who, right. You know not the most religious it doesn't seem religious. to be. Probably probably maybe still be into some form of idolatry. Well, maybe. Laban has quite a handful of them later. Well, Laban, so, Laban, yeah. sure, right? So, um, and yet they speak the same almost verbatim blessing over pretty Rebecca. Cool. And the fact that Rebecca, when they call her, when they say, well, you know, let's ask her if she wants to go, right? And keep in mind, she just met Eliezer maybe the day before, maybe earlier that day. I mean, you know, we're not exactly sure how much time has transpired here, but the strange man shows up. Granted, he's you know he's got lots of goods with him, and he seems to be well off. And he shows up and says, "I'm here looking for a bride for my master." Who's not here, by the way? Who's not here, <laughs> and we don't have any pictures. And, yeah, no pictures. I promise he's a big strong dude. But his Facebook picture. <laughs> yeah, and they ask her, "Will you go?" And it's like she does not hesitate. Right. Yes, I will go. Right. So she's, she's this kind of very decisive, and it's like she has some sort of intuition, you know, naturally that 
most people wouldn't have because she just knows she's supposed to go. Which kind of parallels Abraham, you know? God says, hey, go to this land, I will show you. Right. And there's no directions, exactly. there's no there's no pictures. So you and, can see that, that she is a perfect match in the sense that right. she's cut from the same cloth, so to speak. Exactly. Right? She's got this um, willingness to be obedient, to serve, and this desire. Um, and so then they're traveling back and of course, that famous, you know, scene where, you know, they're approaching, you know, they're, they're approaching um, uh, Hebron, and uh, it says that Rebecca lifts her eyes, which of course is always kind of idiomatic expression for some kind of revelation. She lifts her eyes and she sees Yitzhak, you know, afar in the field, and he had been out there meditating. And it says she fell off the camel, right? And there's all kinds of, <laughs> you know, all kinds of uh, discussion about what does that mean? Did she dismount or did she literally, like, fall? Because it uses, you know, Hebrew, it uses the, the verb nafal, which is, you know, which yeah. is to fall, typically that's understood. Uh, but there was an interesting commentary that I came across um, this week as I was studying this. From, I believe it's from the Yalkut Mashiach. Um, and the commentary said that the reason she fell is it's an illusion. The, the, when she lifted her eyes and saw, the commentary says she saw a revelation of the redemption, um, of Messiah and the redemption. Mm. Okay, well, that kind of makes sense because Yitzhak is a type of Mashiach, right? I mean, we, mm. we know that. Um, and that should have become clear to us last week's in the last week's portion. But um, that she saw, you know, the end, and she saw the redemption in in, in the Messiah, and she fell. And uses that word mafal, and it makes a connection to a name, an, an obscure name for Messiah, which is Bar Nafal, which is. Bar being Aramaic for son, son of the fallen, because hmm. Messiah will be the one who raises those who have hmm. fallen asleep. So she basically sees a revelation of the redemption and of the resurrection mm-hmm. as it will you know, be brought, brought about through Messiah. Hmm. And that is why it, she was taken aback. You know? And so that was the first time I've read that particular commentary, but it makes a very explicit connection to Messiah and to the obscure name for Messiah that's that cool. I've heard before, so it's kind of cool. And it's interesting because, of course, one other tradition about this meeting is that, of course, last week's parasha, this idea, did, did Isaac die? Or did Isaac, was he almost killed? And there's kind of a midrash, which is not really supposed to necessarily be true, but it's kind of an interesting, um, almost an allegory of the actual story where he does die, and one of, the, one of the versions of that story is that this is when he resurrects, that he actually doesn't resurrect on the mountain, but he, like, resurrects through the well at Beer Lahai Roy. Well, because well, it says, most English translations say that he came up from, um, from the air of the Roy, right? Which is the well of seeing. Right. As if, like, you know, well, I came up from Atlanta. Mm-hmm. Right, 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 right. But no, no, he came up from within the well, like he was in the ground. <laughs> And he came up out of the well, right. as if 
So he was this picture of he was dead and he came up as in resurrection. Right. And that's the connection with this weird well, the well of seeing, and then she sees. Yes, and then she sees. The word seeing shows up like three different right. times there. She sees, he's coming from the well of seeing, and he sees. It's kind of this, it's almost, in the Hebrew, it's almost like a, uh, almost like a pun. It's kind of like, it's really funny the way that the word's used over and over again. Miracle is that Rivka agreed to marry a dead guy. Right, right. Okay, Apparently, that. though, he was quite impressive. It's like, whoa, who's that guy walking the field? Yeah, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm my other half. I can't not, not think of him. The same thing happened to me. I got tricked into marrying somebody my mother told me to marry. And then when I kept thinking about it, I read this passage. And I said, she just knew that was right. And she loved him. And that's my main scripture for a matter of choosing to love somebody. Yeah, you get she, that picture. Didn't really, she didn't really know him or anything, and he didn't know her. But he chose to love her. Mm-hmm. Another thing about um, marriage is that the person that you meet and you get to know and you fall in love with isn't really the person that they stay. They evolve. <laughs> All people do. We're always changing. The difference is that normally when people change, they kind of stop being friends because they stop having things in common. When you're married to someone, you're with them forever, so hopefully you change together. <laughs> but you're, it's constantly changing, and then of course the idea is you're hopefully getting closer. But yes, you're right, to that it's point. A choice. It definitely is interesting that the first reference to husband and wife love in the scriptures is not presented in that um, falling sense, but more in the sense of uh, as a choice and as a thing. Also, back to Rebecca with her um, the blessing, you shall... I mean, your seed have the cities of your enemies. The parallel to that is, of course, they one for Abraham. And I think the language in the Hebrew is the gates of your enemies, yeah. which takes me back to what we were studying in Zadi class just past week, where Yeshua talks to Peter, and he takes them up to Caesarea Philippi. And he's up there, and he says, he says, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Messiah, son of God. And he says, you haven't learned this by man. God has taught this to you. And upon this rock kind of playing off of Peter's name, which means stone or pebble. Um, upon this rock, not necessarily speaking about Peter, but speaking about the words he said, I will build my ecclesia, my assembly, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. Which I think, in my mind, is an allusion to this blessing. To this idea that, like, um, your seed will inherit the gates of your enemies is ultimately filled out with the Messiah, who not only rules the world, as we, as we eventually see in Psalm 2 and elsewhere, but ultimately, in Revelation, but ultimately will even conquer death itself, so that even the gates of, of Hades cannot prevail against he and his people. So you get that illusion, that idea of inheriting the gates of your enemies in the ultimate way. Yes, sir? It almost has to come back to this blessing. Because if you've ever looked at anything from the military perspective, gates don't prevail against anything. Gates sit there and you prevail against gates. Right. So it's completely backwards if you try and look at it in any other way. It has to come back to this blessing. That's an interesting point. I hadn't thought of that. So really, Yeshua's blessing is actually a blessing of um, blessing to the uh, offensive side. Right. And so the gates of, will not prevail against you. It's not that they will come and attack you, right. but they, when you're attacking them, you're, you're going to take them. I, and, I don't and, know if you all know. Have you visited the place? I have. It's really okay. cool. And you heard well, the story creepy, about but yeah. it? Yeah, yeah. It's, it's Pan, the Pantheus. It's got it's a huge cliff with a lot of little shelves on it for gods. Right. And that's where they would go and worship their gods. They say that the cave opens is the gate to a huge deep pool that they've never found the bottom of ever. They've never found the bottom of it, and that was called 
the gates of hell. So they would do is they would take an offering up to this cave that sits over like a river, mm-hmm. and the river would run below out of, it. out of the cave. And so the idea was yeah, the current was strong enough that you could throw an animal in there, and it would go into the water and get pulled out of the cave. And so if the and the idea was, I can't remember exactly if it was which way it was, but like if the water, if you threw it in the cave and it came out again, then it wasn't accepted. If you threw it in the cave and it didn't come out again, then it was. The point is, there was this d- demonic tradition about this particular territory. So Yeshua goes up there and he says, the gates of hell will not prevail against you. He's almost referencing what's actually there For physically. All these gods. But also of significance is this whole story is he's Messiah, he's king, right? That's the whole idea. Well, where is he? He's in a place named after Caesar, Caesarea Philippi. So it's it's a it's one of those multiple times as we and I hope that those of you who are not attending Saudi class are still listening to some of the audio online, um, because one of the things you get we talked about a little bit this past Tuesday is that throughout um, Yeshua's ministry he has these little forays as my dad likes to call it shot across the bow these little forays into enemy territory where he would go and he would he would remind the people watching eventually. I'm going to conquer Rome. Eventually, I'm going to be king over everything. This is just a little, little sneak preview of that. And that's kind of what he does here in this whole tradition, which again goes back to this parasha, this idea of um, I'm going to conquer everything. And it's kind of cool that as we're talking about this, that it's these sort of non-Hebrew, so to speak, Re- Rebecca's non-religious family, outside of the family, as it were, even though they're physically part of the family, that are also alluding to this. It's like they get it. They know your family at some point is going to be very, very important. <laughs> they get the picture. So then we get to um, we get to the whole situation with Abraham. He marries again. Tradition holds Keturah. We actually sang the song this morning. Keturah Vasamim um, uh, is the end of that, that one that I unfortunately totally botched. That's okay. Um, with, uh, with the Anke Elohenu, the end of it talks about offering spices. And the, and the uh, tradition holds that Keturah's name comes from that same idea, an aroma. Um, and so they hold, one tradition is that it's actually Hagar. And that she, her name has kind of changed here to reflect the fact that she's repentant and she is a pleasant, pleasing smell uh, offering to God or whatever. And so Abraham has gone back to Hagar, which, I mean, it's, I don't know, it's not obviously in the text, but it kind of makes sense if you think about it. I mean, apparently... Lots of people had multiple names throughout the, the Torah. Um, you know, in our in our part of the world, you know, we've got nicknames. You know, I go by I'm Joshua, and then sometimes people call me Josh. Apparently, back in that day, like I'd be Joshua, and some people call me Ben. You know, that, okay, fine. Um, you know, and so that's kind of the way that it seems to go back then. Um, but I think the tradition does kind of makes some sense. It makes sense that Abraham would go back to to go back to her. Um, we know she was pretty fertile. She seemed to pop out Ishmael really quickly. Um, and this this woman is doing just fine. They have like another dozen kids here. Um, and of course, Abraham makes a point that they're not the chosen one. He sends them off, just like he sent Ishmael off. He learned the lesson the hard way with that one. And gives them gifts, makes sure to take care of them, just like he did with Ishmael. But then he ultimately is, he recognizes that Isaac is the one of promise. Isaac is the one who's the head of the land. Of course, the sages point out that Ishmael buries Abraham with Isaac, lets Isaac go first, this is the symbol that, according to tradition, holds that Ishmael repents because Ishmael realized, even though he was firstborn, that Isaac was the one that was the recipient of the promise. Uh, we see this contrasted by Esau later in the next round of generations where Esau is listed ahead of Jacob as saying that Esau doesn't get it. Ishmael got it. Esau does not. 
It's kind of cool if you look at the Hebrew or the, the translations of some of the names of Ishmael's children. Um, I looked at it one time, and to be fair, I'm not, I wasn't necessarily like that much of a scholar, but these are very obscure words. Um, but it kind of, it almost seems to tell a story of, of sort of like this, this, this descent, this fall, and then the ending being a good one for Ishmael. So there is almost like a picture of him going through a very difficult time in life and ending up um, repentant in the end. So Ishmael ends positively, which is pretty cool. Um, final comments on the, on the Torah portion? Okay. I'm just wondering about um, it, it's tradition holds that with respect to the cave of Machpelah, when, when, when the final redemption comes and the, the resurrection happens, those ones, um, the Avot, Avotena that are buried there will be the first ones to rise. Right. Then the ones buried in, on the Mount of Olives will be the next ones to rise. So there's an honor, <laughs> today even, there's an honor of being buried you know, in that cemetery on the Mount of Olives, because the tradition is that those will, those will be the first, um, besides the cave of Machpelah, will be the first to rise in the resurrection. But I, I don't think there's a custom that I'm aware of where you spend extraordinary. Um, 
know, and, and to be fair, here it was a family plot. Like he was buying a cave that was obviously intended to be used for multiple generations. Apparently, already had a couple of people that were there already, so it was a pretty large area. So it'd be almost. It kind of reminds me, in some ways, actually, of your grandfather. It yeah. has the family plot here, um, which is kind of cool uh, that he's already got that land out and glad it's close. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's neat that you got eight girls, you know, every year for the yard site go out there to pray. Um, and so I do think that, I think there is some significance. I feel like in having a place, a place that you can visit, a place that is marked. Mm-hmm. The idea of having a grave that's unmarked is considered a, a great dishonor mm-hmm. in a lot of cultures. Mm-hmm. But um, and that's even the idea behind like the, the tomb of the unknown soldier. You know, it's like we don't even know who's all here. But we feel the need to mark somehow. We don't even know what the person's name is, but we feel that there's some level we need to have a way for people to pay their respects. So I was kind of thinking that like if someone offered us significance to you for a while um, but it's actually because that's one of the things that do with the I mean not that we, we don't believe in um, ashes but the uh, the whole idea of sprinkling ashes oftentimes is connected to a place they want to have their ashes sprinkled the weirdest story I've ever heard about that was actually a guy whose father wanted to be buried on a football field so in the middle of the game he ran out there throwing ashes and they, yeah. that was a little gross and odd but anyway it's all gross Anyway, the point is, though, that um, I think to your point, though, it's definitely something you should be thinking about because um, you never know when those things happen, and it's good to probably have a plan in place to move quickly on. As you point out, it's got to go fast. Yes. So. I just want to remind you the portion is named Chrysler. Right, Life of Sarah. And that's the thing. is about so moving on. Right. Talking <laughs> about death, um, in Judaism, it's about life. The death is simply the end of the story, but it's how you know how good the life was. Yes, sir? Well, with... There's an interesting, I mean, there's a lot of commentary on on that, but the way it starts out, you know, it says these are the years. Uh, this is the the life of Sarah. She was 100 years and 20 years, and so you know, these are the years. These the, the, uh, these are the years of, of Sarah. So it's like kind of double mm-hmm. like, states it and then restates it. Mm-hmm. Right? Of course, why? And one of the explanations is because while her physical life come, came to an end, it's a picture of her, she continues living in Olam Haba. Ah, okay. So there's Olam, Olam Hazeh and Olam Haba, mm-hmm. so, you know, it's why there's this kind of restating cool. of Chaye Sarah. That's very cool. I like that. Sort of bookended with death, too, because the end is Ishmael dying. Mm-hmm. His years are said in a similar manner. I mean, yeah. It just kind of goes back to the fact that he must have ended. Right, you see the end ended up being a good one. Associated. Yes, Micah? Talking about years, uh, I read that Sarah's, Sarah's years of 
120-something years were actually not her prescribed years, so she died before she was meant to die. Oh, well, there's some tradition about like how long someone's supposed to live. and Because uh, they talk about may your days be fulfilled. So there's an idea that some people could have lived longer, quote-unquote, but they did something wrong. Or they just died at a certain time, and God is gracious to extend them bonus time, overtime, so to speak. Uh, sports reference. But um, I don't know. I think ultimately you are what you, you get what you get. But to that point, though, there is certainly an idea of wanting to live your life in such a way that you're worthy of more, so to speak. Um, and, but ultimately, more, most important thing is to be worthy of a fulfilled life. I mean, I think that's one of the things that's really cool about the Shabbat um, psalm that we read this morning, the Shabbat day psalm, is it ends by saying that um, vigorous and fresh, talking about, they'll, they'll, the righteous person grows old, but there's still energy in life to do what? To say that the Lord is just, my rock in whom there is no wrong. And, um, and actually, I think of Shosha whenever I read that psalm, because she's always one of those people that doesn't matter. Every year, she, she supposedly gets older, but you can't tell. And she has just as much energy as she did when she was 15. Tomorrow is Shosha's 85th Beginning birthday. by 86. Finishing by 86. She'll be 85. Wow. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday, dear Shosho. Happy birthday to you and many more. Prayer line afterwards, she's gonna lay hands on all. Exactly. We asked we asked yesterday that we she she should at least double it like Abraham. So there you go. There we go. There we go. So the parsha takes this theme of death and next generation type thing, and the haftarah flips it to over to David. So we get this very similar story idea of the next generation but instead of it being about marriage it's about kingship and so abraham is passing on the the, gene, the, the family heritage through marriage you're going to be the new patriarch so to speak of the family uh david is passing on through kingship but before we get to the story with solomon and and the whole attempt on the throne by uh, adonijah there's this really odd little like story about abishag and this is random comment about the fact that David's not doing so well. He's getting really old, um, and he has trouble staying warm. So they actually hire someone to keep him warm. Just awesome, awesome tradition. Kind of a weird. <laughs> it's very weird. That's weird. Um, what's also odd about Abishag, which I think is really kind of cool, is there's some odd little little facts about her. And the most important is that they they t- say where she's from which is very weird and of significance. She's from the town of Shunem. She's a Shunemite. The same town as the Haftar from last week. <laughs> so what's going on here? <laughs> but also the Haftar from last week tells you something very interesting as well. So we have this woman from Shunem in this parsha. She takes care of David, keeps him warm as he's getting old, right? So she's main, uh, helping him stay alive, in a sense, by keeping him warm. Then we end up with this woman from Shunem. So the tradition holds that the woman from last week's parsha the, uh, that works with Elisha and has the young man who dies, the woman, the Shunammite woman. Jonah's mom. Some say it's Jonah's mom. She, according to tradition, is Avishag's sister. So they're related. There's a reason why we had this woman from Shunam. We don't know her name, but she's from Shunam. I mean, she's the only... Like, Shunam shows up like three or four times in all of Scripture. It's this little tiny town in the mid- north middle of, Is- of Israel, south of the Sea of Galilee, right around where modern-day Nazareth is, give or take, not too far from Mount Gilboa. It's the, one of the few places that's mentioned is the Philistines camp out there when Saul is going to take, take them on 
and where he has the the, me, the medium at Endor, that whole story. The battle takes place around Shunem. So in Shunem, this woman is there. She has, of course, we had last week's parasha. She takes care of Elisha. Elisha says, what can I do for you? She says, I don't need anything. I'm good. He's like, you don't have a son, and you're getting old, so... I will, God will give you a son the time this next year. Don't just like mess he did with, with me, Isaac. Prophet, man. And then shoot, the woman from Shunem's like, come on, don't, don't pull my leg. You know, I've been, um, you know, if you've dealt with not having kids, you, you're tired of having false hopes. So she's like, look, look, don't, don't pull my leg. I, I want this to be real. The prophet says, absolutely, it's going to happen. She gets pregnant. She has a baby. Baby boy is up into a little boy. Boy goes out in the field. He dies. She stays composed, goes, finds Alicia, and then she kind of lets into him. She's like, I told you not to mess with me, and now my son is dead. And Alicia leaves, and he sends Gehazi, his servant, to go take care of the son first. There's a lot of different reasons traditionally why he doesn't, he's not able to, but he can't raise the boy back to life. Um, so Alicia himself goes. He finds the boy, goes up in the room, and it says that he, he does the most bizarre, like, miracle in almost all of scripture i mean it's pretty weird when yeshua spits and touches the guy's eyes that's really weird but like this one is right there like this is a really weird miracle he lays on top of the dead boy puts his eyes on his eyes his his mouth on his mouth it looks like he's doing like some sort of full body cpr and and he does it once and nothing happens he does it again and the boy wakes up and sneezes seven times which is again just a really weird the whole thing is weird what's important though the reason why i'm telling or rehashing last week's parasha what was Avishag's job? Avishag's job was to take care of David, to keep him warm. One of the last things it says about Elisha with the Shunammite woman's son is that his body warmed. So in scripture and in Judaism, there's this idea of measure for measure. That when you do something good, God rewards you in a similar way. Because ultimately, God is just. And so if you do righteousness, you receive a reward. If you do wickedness, you receive punishment. But it's matched. Even though it's hard for us to always see that, God ultimately evens the scales. Now, obviously, we understand Yeshua, Messiah, our, our, our salvation. We, we don't get what we deserve because of him. But what we understand from that is that he had to die because somebody has to pay the penalty for the things that we did that were wrong. In the end, it's got to even out. And so Judaism teaches that at the height of prophecy is to see God meeting out justice to match the misdeeds or the good deeds of people. And that's what's going to happen at the end of time. So this idea, I think, with the Shunammite story, the reason why I think this is cool, is I think that there's a measure for measure going on. This Shunammite family lets their young, uh, unmarried woman, daughter, go and take care of the king in his old age. She doesn't seem to get much out of this whole experience because later on... um, Adonijah tries to marry her and Solomon puts the kibosh on that because he's afraid he's going to use that to try to retake the throne. Um, and that's the end of her story. She disappears. She's gone. She doesn't show up again in all the rest of the Bible. But the Shunammite woman, like chapters and chapters later, appears old. And the tradition being that it's her sister, I think, only emphasizes this more. This idea this family did a good deed for the king with no, no promise of re- recompense, really. And so God repays it to the family by raising their son almost like this like weird inversion from King David. He's an old guy that they're trying to keep alive. This is a young young man that they're trying Sister to raise. Warned the king, so the king warned her son. Right? So this is this is a picture of this payback. And I think it's really neat. I think that's the only reason why they mentioned that Avishag is from Shunem is so that you can draw the connections. Um, 
So the story also is important, I think, because we learned an important lesson about um, uh, going with the wrong crowd here. Shifting gears slightly, talking about Solomon. Um, Adonijah, uh, you can tell pretty quickly that things are a little wonky because Adonijah has a very specific guest list for his little party, making himself king. He makes sure not to include Solomon. He doesn't include Nathan. He doesn't include Zadok, who is... Uh, if you read prophecies, uh, you realize later that Zadok is like, he's like the cream of the crop in the priesthood. He's so impressive that God promises that every single priest eventually is going to come from Zadok. Like, he is the line of priesthood. Um, and, uh, but who does, who does Adonijah invite? He invites Joab, who has got some issues. Um, he also invites Benaiah, who's the other priest who is unfortunately uh, a descendant of Eli, we mentioned earlier with Hannah, who God had specifically said, the priesthood in your line is going to eventually peter out. It's going to end. I'm not keeping you guys as priests anymore. So Adonijah, it's interesting, you kind of get this idea that he seems to be, he, he's got this group of buddies, these people who support him. He's got the wrong ones. And it's interesting because, of course, he's the first one to kind of announce himself king. And he has this big party. But it's almost like you could, if you're watching this as Israel, look, as an Israelite, let's say you're there and you happen to hear about this going on, it's almost like you could probably feel like something's off. Like, okay, here's this guy. He is technically the next oldest son after Absalom, so maybe he's supposed to be the king. He's good-looking, whatever, but he's inviting all the wrong people to come crown him king. You know, where's Nathan? Where's the, the, the good priest? Where's the right general? You know, where's, the, where's all the mighty men? It's just the mighty men of David don't show up either. They're not invited either. So it becomes kind of obvious. I think that's kind of an interesting thing to think about just in our own lives. When you look at things, it's like when you see a group of people all kind of migrating towards something, it's like, are those the people I want to be associated with? Is that really like, you know, especially if it's a spiritual thing, you know, all these people are going in this direction. It's like, but is that the group that I want to connect with? You know, Julianne and I, sometimes we, we look at lives around us and we think about things. And one thing we kind of point, always find funny is when people um, make someone their own age or younger their mentor. It's like, maybe that wasn't the best choice of, of people to follow because they don't have the experience, you know? You, you want to find, I mean, it doesn't hurt to learn from people around you or younger than you, absolutely. But, like, if you think about, like, if, if all the old people you know are saying this is a bad idea, and all the young people you know are thinking it's the greatest thing ever, that's probably a sign it's not the best move. Because <laughs> the older guys, they usually know. They've been there. They've done. They, they usually have already tried the thing that your young people are saying is cool, and they've already <laughs> didn't work out. <laughs> Isn't that exactly what happened with one of the kings of Israel? That's yeah. It's Solomon's son. The exact same thing happens. He Rehoboam comes out, and he's thinking, okay, well, how am I going to do this? Solomon did this. He did that. People didn't really like this one thing. How do I respond? And the old guys say, oh, you should definitely relax. Like, Chill take out it. A bit. Solomon was a little tough on him, you know, he had them build all these castles and palaces and whatnot for all his wives and everything, so you just, you, you take it easy on the people, and they will love you for it. And the young people are like, no, you need to be, you know, like a scorpion, you gotta be tough, you gotta, you gotta make, make it even harder, they'll respect you if you're even tougher than your father, so he takes the young people's advice, and they, kind of, most of the country leaves, <laughs> it doesn't work out very well. Atlas shrugs. Atlas shrugs. I, uh... It's interesting that you went into that whole Shunammite thing because I actually have to say I didn't see that at all. But that was awesome. What I was thinking when I read it is if, if I were to say, yeah, there's this story in the Bible where the kingdom goes out and seeks for a beautiful girl in the country. 
And then later in the story, the king's wife has to go in front of the king. Somebody tells her, you need to go in front of the king and ask him for something. Sounds like Esther. And, and, and tell him, there's, there's this man in the kingdom who's doing something you really don't want him to do. Did you really order him to do that? Which, in the one story, yes, he did. Yeah. And in this story, he did not. Right. And so she does. But it's interesting because, well, it's funny, really. I'm sure it doesn't mean anything big. But it's funny because throughout all the whole story of Esther, when she goes in front of the king, he's always saying, up to half my kingdom. Right. Half right. my kingdom. In this case, it's like literally the whole thing. It's what they're really talking about at the end there. Julianus was ever reading one of the portion with you know, John the Baptist and his niece impresses him at his birthday party and he's like half to half my kingdom and Julian asks the question why do they never take him up on that <laughs> no one ever says yes I'll have half the kingdom yeah but I think it's interesting because I don't really see why that connection is yeah. there but I think it's that the wording is so similar similar mm-hmm. and I don't really understand why this story would be connected with I have to admit, I didn't see that. Mm. Well done. I kept wondering why she needed to be beautiful. <laughs> yeah. Just for warmth. <laughs> <laughs> oh, come on, you used to find a beautiful woman, and it's like, why? Because a paper bag makes you have a choice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess so. I just thinking she's young and vibrant, and she's having to lay in a bed all day. <laughs> no, she's she actually atrophy. No, she acted like a servant. Yeah, it seems to be that ministering to him seems to almost carry with that idea that somehow she was lots of back massages. You know, she had had strong hands. That was the thing. Yeah. Still, I mean, you know, in our country, this would never fly. This level of discrimination. <laughs> <laughs> not, not, not that one. You know, what they have to do to get around that, like the casinos and whatnot. They actually have to hire models because if right. they want to hire a waitress or whatnot with a certain anything, they can't do that legally. Right. Um, yeah, that's funny. That's a good point. Well, that's one reason why we're going to the parasha now, because we want to try to find these little insights and ask the questions. Why is this alluding to this story? What are we talking about here? Um, and yeah, it's a good point. I don't know exactly why that sounds kind of like Esther. Even weirder, because this story comes first, so it's almost kind of like, well, what's Esther trying to tell us about this story? Yeah. It's interesting that it doesn't seem to be the level of, of forbiddenness to enter into the king's presence that there right. is with Esther. True. It, Nathan doesn't seem concerned at all when he asks Bathsheba to go in there. He says, you need to go do this. I'll follow you instead of I'll lead or we'll ask permission or we'll check. It, it is interesting to me that, that there doesn't seem to be any problem at all about Bathsheba going in to check on him about this and cool. say, uh, there's a little problem here. Right. One was in, one was in Israel, I think. True. Was not. Right. True. Mm-hmm. Very, very true. Um, the Medes the, and the Persians had different rules. <laughs> yeah. yeah, the measure for measure is seen here as well because uh, um, Solomon is the youngest son and really has no right to the front. Hmm. And, and, uh, and yet, Bathsheba, who is greatly dishonored by David, mm-hmm. God rewards her for her son, son being promised the kingship and the line. Mm-hmm. Well, in the commentary, in the, in the Chumash points out like how different history would have been if Adonijah, who apparently seems to just be about throwing a big party, that seems to be his idea of being king, um, had been king instead of Solomon, who's the wisest man of all time. He writes all these you know, Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, he built the temple. You know, Solomon was the right man for the job. They needed him to be there. I think there's an odd allusion in the story to the story of Job. I mean, does anybody get that one? 
So one of the things Nathan says is, hey, you go talk, and while you're still talking, I'll show up and I'll say basically the same thing. And the idea almost being like, we're going to overwhelm David. Like, obviously, this is a huge deal. There's all these people who are freaking out here, so we need to make sure we resolve it right away. And um, what's weird is it's almost the same thing that goes on with Job. So Job is waiting and hanging out in the field or whatever else. So a servant runs up and says, oh, my goodness, your, your camels have been stolen by, you know, this mob, you know, roving mob. And the next servant, while this other one's not even finished speaking, the next servant runs up and he's like, yeah, there was a tornado that came through and wiped out all of your sheep. And, you know, there's a stacking on top of each other. We kind of get that picture. And then the weird part is Adonijah's hosting like all the other sons, which is also kind of like Job. Because one of the things that happens tragically in that story is that all his children are all having a feast, being hosted by his sons, and that's when they all... They didn't have designated children. They didn't have designated children. Exactly. But the weird part about that story is, in, in the story of Job, all of the children, and not exactly because you can never replace people, but they kind of get replaced in the story, so to speak, because Job has more kids. That's supposed to be like a... Uh, round two, as it were. Um, I don't know how to describe that, but anyway. But then, in this case, it's almost kind of the same thing, because Solomon is going to be in place of Adonijah. He's like the better version, as it were, of of the other son. Like Mordecai and Haman. Yes, like yeah. Mordecai and Haman. We're running with, running with the story here. Yeah. I'm thinking it's interesting. I had... Uh, and Mordecai was in the Saul. Um, a couple of weeks ago, I guess it was, I met a, a good friend of mine who teaches... Um, History and Middle Eastern studies, mm-hmm. type of thing. and he had a really critical observation of Islam, and that the culture that Muhammad grew up in, and more or less the same culture that this the the Torah itself is kind of coming out of, not having pure succession is one of the most idiotic things you can do. Is, uh, is if there's not a line of mm. you know father to son, mm-hmm. um, especially when it comes to leadership, kingship, yeah. whatever. Uh, that 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 is that is the first thing you always think of when when, when you're looking at authority. Right. And that's one thing that Islam doesn't have, and the only schism really there is in Islam. <laughs> Once Muhammad died, who is in charge? Right. Ali, he's our guy. Right. So it's funny that the, the Torah and the Haftarah have go out of their way to kind of paint the backstory of, of how the successor is chosen and all these details, which kind of seem superfluous on the surface. Uh, on the service level, but I think that it's really very uh, a, mit, uh, a, a Near East concept that that is being um, emphasized uh, to kind of show the legitimacy of mm-hmm. the succession, which is which is really interesting. Well, and even is, I mean, it seems to be the issue in Europe, Europe as well, and that was the whole idea of the kingship. Like you had to be a relative, and it went through a hierarchy. You know, if you're the firstborn, you're this secondborn. There's no sons. You go with the girls. There's no girls. You go with the cousins. You go. You know, it's like. But it was there was a system in place, and it's interesting because we think about the the apostolic reading for this week is exactly doing that with Yeshua. He the Matthew is trying to draw this line of succession all the way from Abraham to Yeshua, and he makes a point. And this is where it actually creates some controversy. What's going on here? He makes a point of going through this line. He goes through Solomon. Even though there's a little wonkiness with one of the kings about being cursed and everything, he goes through Solomon on purpose so that you, um, whereas Luke draws a different direction, if you're curious how those two lines can line up um, and not be one Mary, one Joseph, but then both be Joseph, there's a really cool study class on that from a year or so ago about the whole idea how with the, uh, with the, par- with the connections between with the Levitic, uh, Levite marriage and how they could actually both be totally legitimate lines that end up, because they actually, they, they, they link up in a couple of weird places towards the end. 
So in the end, they can actually be the same genealogy for the same guy, even though they come from two different two different families, um, two different fa- parts of the same family, I should say. But anyway, so the the whole point of that genealogy in Matthew, though, is about succession. It's about proving that he's there, um, and that's the idea they're going for. Yes, sir. Just I was going to add, um, Ariel Kalanoro also recently posted three or four video series on uh, from from the genealogy of Matthew. Okay, that's pretty cool. He brings out some some interesting insight there too. So well, one of the weirdest things about it is it's missing three kings. He specifically addresses that. What, what's it? I'm just curious. What is no, it? No, no, no. Oh. Come on. S- sneak preview? Uh, I'm, I'm not sure. You meant my dad. I'm not sure I can articulate it properly, but, um, but he specifically identifies the three kings that are skipped, and he explains why they're skipped, and it's really cool. It's, it's a pretty cool connection, but I, I've got to go back and listen to it again, because I've got to kind of make sure I can grasp all the details, but he specifically addresses that because obviously that's a criticism. Right, it's a criticism you know, of Matthew. Anti missionaries say, well, the genealogy in Matthew's not even complete. Right. You know, um, but Ariel brings out some really good perspective on that. Rashi says when something doesn't add up, you're supposed to ask the question. Well, here's the weird part about the genealogy the genealogy is missing three kings. They're all in a row, which is even weirder. Yes. It's not three different, there's like three of them in, a, in succession. They just takes out completely. What's weird is that he replaces them with three women. There are three women in the, in the genealogy that are referenced, Tamar, um, Rahab, and Bathsheba, mm-hmm. who each get a reference, which is odd anyway to have them in a genealogy. The fact that they're, all three of them are um, either foreigners, Gentiles, or the whole hinkiness with David. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's like, the, the, so they're controversial. they're controversial women that he specifically highlights in the story, uh, which I think is in some ways supposed to be alluding almost to the, to the controversy surrounding Yeshua's own birth. You're kind of making a connection there because Matthew is one of the ones that dives into that. Oh, right, and David's as well, almost making a parallel. Um, but what's interesting about the three kings that get pulled out, because I wasn't sure about who they were, so I looked it up and uh, there was some Christian blog that just pulled them out because I knew that they were missing and I couldn't remember who they were. And he, they pull it out and they point, make a point that, well, Matthew's really talking about the... He's making a point. He's not trying to give a, a, a chronological historical line, exhaustive line here. Um, and it actually, it's important to note that the idea of genealogies in the Torah, in the Tanakh, are not intended to necessarily be a history lesson. And one of the things that, I think it's Ramban, he goes so far as to say that like the entire genealogies in Chronicles are allegorical. There's no, they're not, it doesn't even matter who they are, because they have some weird ones. Like, oh, there's actually, like, Moses has, like, two or three names, like, depending on which genealogy you're looking at. So does his father. There's a lot of, it's true. But there's a lot of weirdness going on in the genealogy, so the point where they're saying, that, like, well, actually, the point of genealogy is the Hebrew words and what they mean, and all the pictures and stories you get out of that. They're not really the facts of this person gave birth to this person. It's almost, it's almost irrelevant. It doesn't even really matter. We don't care. We're focused on the story we're trying to tell here. And so Matthew's definitely doing... Luke is about the facts. He wants that one person gave birth to this person, gave birth to this person. His is a lot more straightforward. But the three that are missing, which is weird, is that all three of them have kind of illegitimate elements to them, which is really funny. So two of them get assassinated, which is extremely rare in, in the Jewish king, the Judah kingdom. It was unusual. In Israel, the northern kingdoms, it seemed to happen every other generation because they kept flipping families. But in Judah, as we see from Matthew and from Chronicles, it's the same family line. So what's weird about them is that two of them get taken out before their kingdoms, kingships are over, which is weird. 
Um, then the third one doesn't end as king. He gets leprosy, and he has to go off and live by himself, and his son is effectively king while he's still alive, which is also weird. So it's almost as though you could make an argument, I think, that Matthew, when he carves three out, because he has a point with, with the number thing, which we'll get to in a second, but I think part of it is he picks three that are almost like their, their legitimacy is questioned anyway. They're, they don't, none of them end happily. And it's almost his point to say, like, the point of this genealogy is to show legitimacy. It's to show that Yeshua is the son of David, the son of Abraham, and he is the right to the throne. So putting the three kings in that are questionable, so to speak, even though they're part of the line, is almost like unnecessary. That's not the point. What's funny, though, is he makes a point of making the 14, 14, 14, 14 generations, 14 generations, 14 generations. Abraham to David, David to the exile, exile to Yeshua. Well, what is 14? Gematria man. David. 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 In Hebrew, the Gematria of David is 14. So we have David, 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 which is really kind of cool the whole way through. Um, also, I, I, I looked up on some Christian blog or whatever else that had another reference at that point that I thought was weird, is that if you add up all three of those, you end up with 42, which is apparently the number of stops they took in the wilderness, which also is... Also the meaning of what? <laughs> 42 months is the last three and a half years. Right, three and a half years. You kind of get that 42 shows up in, uh, in Daniel and then again in Revelation as well. And the master's life. The master's ministry was three and a half years. All right, there we go. It's like... Exactly. <laughs> Deep thought. Was that his name? Deep thought. Forty-two. Apparently, it is. Um, anyway, so that's just Matthew's point is different, and that's why the genealogy is incomplete, and it doesn't matter because it's not about the facts; it's about telling the story. And uh, I think that the, I and, and Rashi's right. Anytime you look in the scripture, we talked about this in society class last Tuesday. Anytime you look at scripture and it doesn't line up, rather than finding that as a, as a point of controversy, you should be asking the question, why? Because we believe that God wrote, inspired the scriptures. He's effectively the author, which means that any mis, you know, mistakes like that are actually on purpose. They're supposed to be there. You know, a really good author, a really brilliant, fantastically talented, gifted author will do things wrong on purpose because they're trying to make a point. So, you know, you'll read poetry that's got misspelling and you'll be like, oh, the person couldn't spell right. Well, no, they could spell right. They did it on purpose because they were trying to make a point with that. And that's kind of what, what, what the Bible tends to do. They have these weird pieces on purpose. You know, I remember when I was in, in, high, in, uh, in college and there was a religious class and they all go ban bananas because one got a creation account uses... Hashem, and one creation account uses Elohim. Obviously written by two different people, at least two, maybe five. The second was clearly a woman, you can tell. <laughs> anyway, and the, the point that they do is they're, they're using it because they want to tear the scriptures apart and somehow prove that they're not true in their own minds. And the tragic part of that is Judaism does the opposite. Judaism looks at this and goes, that's weird. I wonder why. So Judaism starts digging into it, and their conclusion is, well, Hashem is... The, the kingly name for God that's in reference to, and also it deals with like his, his mercy and his majesty. And then Elohim is like the more judge-like name for God, and it's more, it's more uh, practical or whatever. You know, like, so they, instead of taking it as, oh, this is obviously two different stories, they see it as two sides of the same story. And they're saying, God is trying to tell us something very profound about himself. That the same God who made the universe by speaking into existence 
is the same God that physically molded Adam out of dust and, and specifically made Eve so that he would have a partner. And it's like, wow, we got that. Rather than getting lost in the details, yes, sir. I was just going to mention, like the the the, the harmony of the Gospels, uh, which a very poorly written book by Bruce Metzger, Harmony of the Gospels, which is actually a book we attempt to prove the is harmony. Of the Gospels. <laughs> he's a good he's a good conservative Southern Baptist uh, professor. But anyway, uh, in in such books where they try and draw the contrast in order to show the unity. Um, uh, unfortunately, what they fail to recognize is that a really good hoax isn't so stupid as you could put bad math in. Right. You know, if it's a really good hoax, you obviously we have four gospels. Let's make them add up. Right. You know, I mean, we're going to put them in the same book. People aren't going to be aren't going to be stupid. So let's at least make them. I mean, we're making it up. We might as well make it add up, right? Right. 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 Yeah. Well, and the it, the, the, the 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 things that are the the the, the Rashi questions are actually proof of authenticity. In other words, the scriptures are cared for so carefully that the curators, as the world would see them, the curators made sure that they kept the words exactly and didn't say, you know, we, should fix we don't see this <laughs> add up, let's fix it, which is what modern right. editors would do. Right. Um, okay, does anyone know why one of the most expensive trading cards ever sold at auction was like I think a I think a quarter of a million dollars. A little tiny piece of paper with an athlete on it. A quarter of a million dollars. Because it was the only one with a flaw. The card itself, they made you know they made like two dozen of them anyway, right? A special edition, whatever else. But this one had a like a mistake in the printing. But it's the only one like that, or one of only a couple. So, because of the flaw, it became unbe unbelievably valuable. That idea is part of how you can tell uh, with like paintings. You can tell if it's legitimate or if it's a, it's a fake. Because the original painter, back in whatever century, you know, he's mixing paint together with berries to make the color change. You know, they didn't have the capacity to make it always match perfectly or to make it look exactly the way that we would do it today. So they, one of the ways you can, you can tell a forgery sometimes is based on whether or not it has flaws. And that's a, I think that's a, that it's a picture because it's the idea that I'm trying to get at is that in the scriptures, I think they're there to, to highlight stuff. They're there to make you ask the questions because God's trying to red flag, this is important, you might want to read this. So we get Matthew's genealogy, and what do we get? Out of, this, out of the genealogy, I've seen all the parts of scripture that really I had trouble paying attention to. It's the genealogies. And that one... We have the David reference with Gematria. We get the fact that the three kings missing are all kind of questionable legitimacy. We get the idea that the three kings are then replaced by three women, which is really weird. I mean, it makes the question, why do we talk to the three women? I mean, there's so many little snippets that Matthew's point is that Yeshua is the son of David. He's the Messiah. Amen. That's all he has to say. But that's the goal. Yes, sir. How about another connection in the Haftarah? Excuse me, go back to Absolutely. And that is that, that the end of the Haftarah actually has Bathsheba saying long live, you know, long made King David live forever. And the reference then, of course, to Kaisarah is that she lives forever. Right, and of course that phrase, may King David live forever, is a phrase used in Judaism today, this idea of resurrection, the idea that David, because the prophets have this weird reference to David later, 
they talk about my servant David as though he's still alive or that he's going to be alive. He's going to be in charge of everything again. Just kind of this weird, you know, what are we talking about here? We're talking about actual David or just somebody who's like David. But this idea of David lives forever um, is, this, is that same concept, that idea of resurrection from the dead. In fact, that going back to what we were talking about originally in the parasha, there's a tradition that holds the reason why Gehazi couldn't raise the Shunammite son is he wasn't really convinced of the resurrection of the dead. He was actually asking people as he went, do you think this stick can raise this son, get kid from the dead? You know? Yeah, yes, sir. Um, during the time uh, of the, the period of time where the Greeks controlled Israel um, and they had forbidden basically the practice of Judaism, so you couldn't, couldn't keep kosher, you couldn't have a Torah scroll, you couldn't, you know, all these different things. And one of the things that they that they um, prohibited was the traditional um, recognition of Rosh Chodesh. Mm-hmm. And uh, they would no longer allow the uh, Sanhedrin to declare the new moon. And so, you know, when was it, right? And mm-hmm. so um, during that time, there was a practice that, that uh, developed that when a Jew would meet another Jew, you know, in, you know, on the road or in the market or whatever, if it was um, Rosh Kodesh, they would greet, they had a kind of a greeting where they would say, David Melech Chai Chayam, right, which King David lives, uh, uh, lives forever. Um, lives and endures is probably a common translation. But they, it was interesting that they chose that phrase to be the secret, you know, decoder phrase to let the rest of the Jews know that it was Rosh Kodesh because one of the understandings was that, you know, that King that David, the son of David, Messiah Ben David, would come on a Rosh Kodesh, and so they used this phrase as a way to kind of inform everybody, you know, um, covertly that, that, hey, today is Rosh Kodesh. Right? So, but it, it kind of gets back to that concept of the understanding that da- King David was this picture of Messiah who lives forever. Lives forever. Very cool. Very cool. Final comments? I think we're actually going to end on time for once. Mm-hmm. Alrighty, sir, if you close that in prayer. Sure. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the word of God and the seed of David who lives for We pray, Father, that you would send him soon and in our days that he would reign over us eternally. Father, we give you thanks for the Sabbath and ask that you would protect our families and protect our nation in these tumultuous times as we prepare this coming week for Rosh Kodesh. May it be the day that you send your son. And all God's people say, Amen. Amen. Amen.